Brilliant, thank you, Andrew, and a happy new year to every single one of you who are watching today. It's sad that we can't meet together, but we can still meet together virtually and we can read God's word and learn what he has to teach us. Now this morning we're going to look at Habakkuk chapter 3. You can turn there just now, I'm going to give a kind of preamble to help us get into the book and this gives you time to maybe look at the front of the book to find what page it's on. It's on page 786 in the church Bible. I don't know why you would have a church Bible, but if you do, please return them. It's four books from the back of the Old Testament and it's Habakkuk chapter 3 we're going to look at. And I actually think it's the perfect book and the perfect chapter for us to look at on this day the first Sunday of the year. For, for one, it's just helpful to kind of drop into a book that we've not looked at or read. Um, and as a church, even just the, the, the genre of book, we've not really looked at any of these in depth as of yet. So it's always helpful to do that. It's also helpful just as we read through the Bible ourselves throughout the year, just to have kind of an idea of what's going on in the book. But I think it's particularly helpful On this day, as we look back on the train wreck of 2020, and as we look forward to 2021, hoping it's going to be better, but even three days in, as Sam was saying, we have no idea what it will hold. So I think this is a really, really helpful chapter and book to do. And Habakkuk chapter 3, just let me kind of tell you from the start what's going to happen. What we're going to learn is is that God sees the evil and suffering in the world and he's going to deal with it. But it's not how we always expect. And actually that is far better for us. My hope today is just that we will realise that God is working despite it not looking like he is working. And that God's way is better than any way or anything we can imagine and will hopefully kind of quell our dissatisfaction with God. And that might be kind of a direct dissatisfaction where we kind of complain or grumble to him. But I think how it comes out more often than not is our complaining about every single thing going on in the world around us. An indirect complaint about how God is working. You kind of see this in the way that we would just love to click on a link that has something that we know is going to make us annoyed. And we click on it anyway because we want to grumble. That's what we are like. And what we're going to learn from Habakkuk 3 is that God is in charge and that is better for us than we can imagine. And then, bizarrely, the hope is at the end that we will rejoice like Habakkuk. Sam read earlier, rejoice in all of our circumstances. But before I begin reading and pray, I just want to kind of give a context for the book and what's happening. Because we are just jumping into a minor prophet. Uh, Habakkuk is said in many different ways. I've probably said it wrong many times. But it's a book that we don't know a lot about. In fact, the man Habakkuk himself, there's not much written about him outside of this book. And there's not even the commentators don't know a lot about what is going on. But what we do know is that it was written about 600 years before Jesus came. So that's helpful. Just get you the Bible timeline out in your mind. It's about 600 years before Christ. And that's helpful not just because you're going to do a Zoom quiz later with a Bible round and you will know where Habakkuk is in that, but it's helpful to know because of what's going on in the land at the time. 
You see, Israel was this nation. And about 2200 BC was Abraham. Then about 1800 we looked at last year was um, the Exodus, what we looked at last year. Then about 1000 BC, that kind of time, was when David was king of Israel. And now we're at 600 BC. And what's important to know is that Israel was one nation under one king. But between when David was king and the time we're looking at now, it's split into two. And there's a northern kingdom that's called Israel and a southern kingdom that's called Judah. If you imagine like the United Kingdom, I'm not going to get into kind of any indie ref stuff just now, but imagine kind of split into two nations with two separate kings in charge. And about 700 BC, 722, the northern kingdom, Israel, which had turned away from God and turned away from his ways, had been invaded by the Babylonian Empire. They'd come in and kind of just pillaged everything. In that kind of that picture of England and Scotland, just imagine living in England and seeing Scotland just run over by the Vikings, completely decimated and destroyed and taking people captive with them. And the southern kingdom, where Habakkuk is, where a hundred years after that, is looking on at all the destruction that has gone on in northern kingdom in Israel. And it's, it's kind of sitting there thinking, what is going on? And that is what Habakkuk is writing into and what he is speaking into. And so that's the context of where the book is situated. Now we're going to jump into chapter 3, the very last chapter And what's happened in this book, and this book is fantastic, let me tell you, this book is really, really great because we can picture exactly what's going on there. Because in chapter one, Habakkuk looks out on the land. He looks out on the people and there is idolatry. There's this turning away from God. There is injustice. There is poor people not being fed. All of this is going on in the land and Habakkuk cries out, God, why are you not doing something about this evil and suffering. Aren't you going to deal with the evil and suffering that we see? And God responds. This is what happens in chapter 1 and 2. God responds and he says, I see the evil and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send in the Babylonians. And, and the Habakkuk, he generally kind of says, what? what? They're worse than we are. How can you send them in to deal with our problem? And that's it. That, that's essentially how the book is written. And that's what it's all getting at. And then one of the most famous verses in Habakkuk is Habakkuk 2, verse 4. And it says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. So the whole idea of Habakkuk is, is that the Babylonians are coming in They're going to deal with the evil and suffering going on in your country, Habakkuk. It's not how you expect it to be dealt with. But the believer, the righteous one, the Christian, lives by faith that God is still in control. And that's kind of the whole run-up of the book. And in fact, all the minor prophets are written essentially to tell us how serious God takes sin and that he's going to deal with it. That it can't go unpunished. And that's the minor prophets, and for us, it's that God sees the evil and sin in the world, and He has, for one, dealt with it. And the evil and suffering in the world that we see just now, He is dealing with it. Just hold fast and rejoice. 
So let's read Habakkuk 3 as we kind of get our bearings in this. And it's a strange kind of chapter. The, the first two chapters of the book are all telling us kind of the story of God and um, Habakkuk's conversation. And chapter 3 is Habakkuk's response to it all. And it's a prayer. It's a prayer of Habakkuk. And it's actually written as a song, as you'll see at the very end of the chapter. So this was sung in Israel. Before I read, I'm just going to pray just for help, because this is a strange passage, because it deals with difficult problems, and that you will not hear my words of comfort, but you will hear the words of comfort of the Lord God Almighty. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would just help me speak truth. Let me not step outside the bounds of what you have said, and that as we read chapter 3 of Habakkuk, we will be overawed with who you are. We would live in a right fear of you, but know that no matter what is going on, you are in ultimate control. You are good and you do good. We pray you'd help us this morning. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 to 19 of Habakkuk. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. That's kind of a tune that was probably sung back in the time that we don't know about anymore. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years. Revive it in the midst of the years. Make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God came from Taman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tent of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow and calling for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And Habakkuk says, I hear and my body 
trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is God's word and it is helpful for us to grow in righteousness and to learn more about who he is. Now, now this morning I have kind of three points but they kind of just flow off the back of one another, just following through the logic of what Habakkuk says. It comes off the back of that big question, aren't you going to do something about evil and sin, God? Aren't you going to deal with the problems that we see in the world around us? And he says, I'm coming to destroy the enemy, not how you expect. And then the response is, rejoice. I'm coming to destroy the enemy, not how you, re- you expect, rejoice. And just as I, I read through those verses just now, you can just sense Habakkuk's fear in this. And, and you get it because it's quite a terrifying image that's going on. But the fear of Habakkuk is not of a man kind of curled up in a fetal position, just rocking back and forth. It's a man in prayer to God. Listen, verse 2. He says, O Lord, I heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. He's saying, I am in fear, but I trust you to be in control. And just listen to the end of verse 2, the plea that he makes. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. In all that you're going to do, God, Please remember mercy. And the, the idea of fear kind of goes right through these verses. We did this a weekend away with our youth uh, in Chalmers. And I actually got them to, to draw some of the imagery that is going on. It's actually quite terrifying as you walk through it. Because essentially it's this story of, of this warrior character marching through the land, destroying his enemies. This fearsome, creation-bending God about to blast to smithereens those who are against his people. And just follow through the verses as I, as I do this and just get the image of this warrior character walking through. Verse 3, this warrior looks like this. He came from Taman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. So, so the idea is that there's kind of an exodus theme running through it and that's kind of where... It starts, but he is the splendor of him covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. This unknown power behind this warrior character. Just carry on, follow down. Verse five, pestilence went went 
Before him went pestilence and plagues followed at his heels. And part of this is just to kind of get the idea there's two parts to it. One part is that plagues and pestilence and disease, all the things that would have just destroyed a nation back in the day, are just at his heels like an animal. Like a dog just walking alongside him. And the other part is to get in our mind with the word plagues, kind of thinking of Exodus. That this is the, the warrior God of Exodus chapter 15 that is sung about. Again, marching through the land to deal with the enemies. And just carry on, follow through with me. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. Nations sinking, mountains scattering, hills sinking low, land trembling. It's fearsome, this. Verse 8, it's great. Were you angry at the rivers, God, when you rode through on your chariots? What this does is makes me think of one of the boys who used to play football with us. He was a right back, a solid defender, great tackle. But when he ran, he stomped. He was fast, but he would force so much energy down when he was running. It was almost like he was angry with the ground. That's kind of the image, the, the pace that God is going through. Were you angry at the sea with how you did that? Verse 8, he comes in this chariot of salvation. This unleashed power. Because God is about to bring the hammer. Verse 9, you kind of get this, the language changes to more of this war stuff with the chariot. Verse 9, you stripped your sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Creation itself, verse 10, is, is squirming uncomfortably, mountains writhe, waters rage, sun and moon stand still, flash of a spear. Verse 12, you marched through the earth in fury. This is this terrifying image. What we're meant to think is, wow, God, God is fearsome, is a terrifying being that's coming, but look at verse 13. Look at verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the heads of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. And that, just that image, can I say that, that laying him bare from thigh to neck is as if a man picking up a sword and running right through from bottom to top, cutting the man into utterly destroying him and what we're seeing here is in this event that God is doing he is for one judging and destroying the enemy and rescuing rescuing him his people simultaneously that is what is happening in this picture verse 16 Habakkuk says I hear my body trembles I just love the way he puts it rottenness enters my bones when I moved to Edinburgh, I just learned that, that coldness was different because it just entered into my bones when it came to winter. There's a different kind of cold. This rottenness enters into his bones. His legs tremble. And so, so God is not kind of a cuddly bear who we run to or a distant Santa Claus figure with a beard or, or my boyfriend who I write love songs about, but God is a warrior king who is coming to judge and rescue his people from the evil that is all around them. 
He's not vindictive, taking out power on whoever he wishes. But it's a God who is bringing the smackdown on the issue that needs smackdown. If I could put it in a more provocative way, God is bringing justice. God here is a justice warrior. In, in the kind of the, the picture that's going on here, imagine Nazi Germany. Imagine the concentration camps where there is suffering and evil going on. For that suffering and evil to stop, the US Army and the British Army had to go and invade, had to storm the camps, rid the enemies from the stronghold with force and might. And that is the same event that saves the people from the evil and suffering that they are under. This is the image where God just destroys the enemy with one fell swoop. To save his people from evil. And so to the question that Habakkuk asks of God all the way through this, God, don't you see all that's going on around us, the pain and suffering? Or change it to us, don't you see, God, the suffering that we are under right now specifically as as a nation or personally throughout the years, the evil of sin permeating every fibre of society, the, the rampant devil running amok, ruining relationships, bringing illness and pain and agony. To that, God says, I see it and I'm going to deal with it, but not how you think. And that's because in chapter 3, the song has a slight ambiguity. Because I've spoken the whole time that this is God marching through to destroy the Babylonians. But I think it purposefully has this ambiguity because who is the warrior? From Habakkuk, we actually learn that the warrior is God, but the tool which he is using to rid Israel of its problem is the Babylonian Empire. Aren't you going to do something about the evil and sin? He says, yes, Babylon are coming, but you will be saved. He's going to smash to pieces the enemy and save the anointed. That is his, the king of Israel, but also just the people of Israel and in this case it means decimating Jerusalem destroying Judah and through this God is going to save to bring it back to us we ask the question are you going to do something about this evil and suffering God God says on the kind of cosmic level yes I'm going to rescue you from all of this Not how you expect. I'm going to send the Messiah you've been waiting for to the cross so that you might be saved. Capital S-A-V-E-D. Saved eternally for a cosmic scale. But it has two strands of kind of application for us. One is that kind of cosmic scale. One is the day-to-day personal of us. Are you going to do something about the evil and sin? And he says, yes. And then you can kind of fill in the blank. Think of the worst situations that have happened to you. Think personally of the most difficult thing 
that has happened. And he says, I'm going to do this, but you will be saved. And that, that idea is that you are saved eternally, so that your hope is in something bigger. But it's also, we, we learn from the New Testament, Romans 8.28 and 2 Corinthians 2 is kind of this changing us from glory to glory. The, the, the idea of saving in the New Testament is kind of sometimes, the, the fancy word is sanctification, is kind of shaping and molding us. And what God is saying is, is that the difficult situations that happen to us, and you have to understand how hard it is for me to speak to a camera knowing that it's going out to multiple situations and lives. But God is saying that he uses the most difficult and awful and evil seeming situations ultimately for our good. One is we hold on to the, the big saving, the capital S-A-V-D that we have. And the other is, is that we just learn that we are being shaped and molded and learning to rely on God more and more. What it's saying is God saves and changes us, but not how we would imagine through our most dreadful and judging situations. That's what verse 16 tells us. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So it comes kind of unexpectedly. And I just want to kind of speak on these two areas, the cosmic unexpected nature of how God works and just kind of the day-to-day personal On the cosmic scale, God worked through evil to bring about your and my ultimate saving. That picture, you know, I brought up is is really hard to kind of picture that God works like this. But verse 13, were you out to save? um, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That, That kind of idea where the sword comes right through the person, the enemy. Jesus on the cross did that to the devil, to death, to the strongholds of sin that were upon us. The image of this this warrior God bringing justice, this Exodus Mark 2, Jesus is the warrior king bringing about ultimate, final and decisive justice. If you have your Bibles, flick to Revelation chapter 1. That you'll see that this idea of Jesus being this warrior king is not just my kind of making up off the top of my head, but this is what John writes about Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. Jesus is this warrior king. Listen, I was in the spirit, John says, on the Lord's day and heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying... Write what you see in this book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. So he's going to write these letters to the churches. And he says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white, white, white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. That imagery is very similar to what we read in Habakkuk 3. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and saying, just like Habakkuk, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. What we learn about Jesus in Revelation 1 is that picture in Habakkuk 3. He holds the keys of death and Hades. 3.13 says, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. That's bringing back Genesis 3 language where Jesus was going to crush the head of the serpent. It's this frightening image of the final, absolute defeat of the devil and of death. It's where we sing, O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's really not how we would have done it. We would like it to be that, but would we ever have the audacity to ask the school teacher to clean up the, the pupils staining mess on the carpet or the judge to do the time for the criminal on death row. The mess of our situation, we would never even ask it, but God stepped in to deal with the biggest problem, destroying the former captive, saving us to himself. Not how we would expect that that kind of imagery of Habakkuk 3 is for the Babylonians and Habakkuk for us and our sin dealt with but then there's the second strand on the other hand we have God works through our circumstances not how we would like not how we would wish not how we would do it not even how we want, but he does work through them. And again, it's difficult for me to kind of comprehend, to, to say this across to a lot of people with lots of different hurts. And even personally, we know just how can God use things for my good that hurt so bad? And I don't want to kind of give an answer that God doesn't give us here. I don't want to try and answer any soul-searching questions. I can't answer why God allows suffering. God doesn't reveal that all the time. But I can say that he does ultimately deal with the root of all suffering in that cosmic way. God has to be in control. If he's not, then it's a free-for-all. 
And we can say that somehow, some way, God works through the most difficult of our situations. Romans 8.28 says, Romans 8.28 says this, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That's the the hope that we have to hold on to. In all circumstances, God works. And it... We can kind of finish with the the rejoice part of verses 17 to 19. God works on the cosmic scale. He works on the day-to-day scale. Read verses 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit beyond the vines. And just listen to the three different ways he says it. The produce of the olive fail and the field yield no fruit, no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. That is kind of three ways of, of not saying there's no food in the fridge. This is, this is like death in the nation. There is famine across the land. Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It is dire straits. He is talking about the captivity underneath the Babylonian empire. And he says, yet I will rejoice. He waits and rejoices. And not in kind of a false security, not in kind of this sense of overblown optimism that everything is going to be okay, but in a deep-seated security that though we have no control of our world or situation, God has given lasting, lasting security and certainty because he is the God of our salvation. God is working out for his glory and our good. God is better at being God than we are. I'll just give you some, some quotes. God gives you everything you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. Jonathan Edwards, a 17th or 18th century minister in the States, writes this, Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. God is in absolute control. And as we kind of hunker down or bunker down for the difficult trials of life, we know at the end of the tunnel there is light and that we are saved And we know from this that even in these darkest times, God is working for our saving. I'll finish with this story. There's a guy called Jonathan Evans in America, and he's in this kind of African-American church, and he's speaking at his mother's funeral. And they'd been praying for the recovery of her cancer. But she inevitably died, and this is he was given a eulogy at her funeral, and he speaks powerfully 
of the loss and uncertainty of where God is in this trial. And then he kind of tells a story speaking um, how God would have answered him. He says, just because I didn't answer your prayer your way doesn't mean I didn't answer your prayer anyway. Victory was already given to your mum through Jesus. And because of that, he says, there was only ever two answers to your prayer for her healing. She was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. She was going to live or she was going to live. She was going to be with family or she was going to be with family because victory belongs to the Lord. Because of what God has done already, the answer is always yes and yes. One may be far quicker, one may be far more difficult, like Habakkuk chapter 3. But we know that God is in absolute control of our healing, of our living, of our family, and ultimately of our victory. God is the God of our salvation. We have to trust in him and rejoice. And that, that is saying this, Habakkuk saying this after three chapters of questioning everything that God is doing. And the Psalms talk about it time and time again. What are you doing, God? How is this working? And it is okay to ask God these questions. But we have to come to the final point where we say God is still in control. If he's not, we're kind of just freewheeling through the universe with no reason or rhyme to what is going on. God gives ultimate hope. So as we stand on the precipice of a new year with more anxiety than ever before as to what this new year will bring, my prayer and our prayer as a church should be that we would not be kind of falsely puffed up, this kind of prosthetic optimism, but that no matter what comes our way in the year to come, we can rejoice in the Lord of our salvation, who is our strength, our guide, and our stronghold. It's difficult, but let's pray we do that. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the image that you give us in Habakkuk 3, that you are this God who is creative and gives us songs and, and rhymes and poetry so that we can see from a different angle how you are working and the truth that you have to teach us. We pray this morning as we look out over 2021, not knowing what is around the corner in the coming weeks and the coming 12 months. We pray earnestly for an end to what is going on in the pandemic. We pray earnestly that you would heal broken lives, ours or the people in this church or further afield, that you'd be with our friends and family and help us to rejoice in the God who has saved us ultimately, destroyed the death, the devil and sin, taken us from our former captor to our glorious king. Amen.